Welcome to the Business of You podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Gogos. This podcast is dedicated to helping you uncover how to turn your big idea into big business and grow your personal brand into the business of your dreams. Each week, I'll talk to founders of all kinds of businesses, exploring how they launched and grew their companies. Behind every successful business is an epic journey, one that can serve as a roadmap to help you grow yours. The Business of You is all about frank conversations and unique business wisdom for the entrepreneur. It's a chance to tune into the story behind the brand and retrace the path of those who walked this road before you so you can pave your own road to success. Welcome to The Business of You. Coco Brown is the visionary who started the Athena Alliance. Today, she also serves as the CEO of this SaaS platform, which is known for community learning and access to opportunity for many of its members who tend to be females. Members are executive women from everywhere, all around the globe. They are from industry giants, including Microsoft, Bank of America, Disney, and rising leaders like Databricks, Stripe, and Taildesk. There are also unknown up-and-comers in the C-suite who are members of Athena Alliance. Recently, Coco also joined the NASDAQ Center for Board Excellence Insights Council. Coco is not only shaping the lives of women who want to join boards through Athena Alliance, but she's also making a huge impact on corporations around the country through her, through her role at the NASDAQ Center for Board Excellence Insights Council. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of The Business of You. Today on the podcast, I welcome Coco Brown. Coco, how are you this morning? Great. Thank you. So good to have you this early in the morning from California. Thank you. It's terrific to be here. Coco, would love to start with your backstory and how you got to where you are today, which is founding and leading an organization of uh, the Athena Alliance. Tell us your story. Okay. Um, Well, so I grew up on the East Coast in Pennsylvania, uh, mostly. I was born in Malaysia. and traveled, we traveled quite a lot, but mostly our home base while I was growing up was in the Philadelphia area, um, farm country, Oxford, Pennsylvania, um, surrounded by dairy farms. And I went to school in Philadelphia as well. And then I moved out to California when I was 22 years, 23 years old, just between 22 and 23, I guess. Um, And that was almost 30 years ago. Um, so it was a, a long time ago. Uh, and I've been in the Silicon Valley ever since. And so my whole career has really been centered in the tech world, um, building and running tech businesses. Uh, and I started in psychology. I was a psychology major. Um, and I found myself in tech companies in HR functions working between uh, various different departments that, you know, would struggle with one another, you know, sales is always selling things that product can't build and, (laughs) and trying to get the relationships to work between the two organizations. So I was in employee relations and um, organization design was kind of very much my interest. I ended up being the manager of training and development for a 
company called NetFrame. And then I spent 16 years at a company called Taos. And Taos is an IT professional services and managed services company, which means, you know, at the heart of it, people are the product. And at our peak, we had 700 and some people out in the field um, in the late 90s who were um, anything deep infrastructure, so servers, networks, security, databases, et cetera. And I ended up running about two thirds of the company as the vice president of professional services. Um, and that was um, that was quite, it was an ambitious ride for me in my late twenties. I, you know, I wasn't really thinking so much about being a woman or how hard it is, you know, or, or the challenges that women have in comparison to men because none of those things were holding me back at that point. But in 2002, we had by that point um, crashed in the dot-com bust. And um, we went from, you know, 700 employees to 70 employees, like we 750 or so for 70. Yeah. And most of those layoffs were in my team. You know, I had to lay off tons and tons of people and, and the two owners of the business came out of retirement and said, hey, nice to meet you, Coco. Um, we let the CEO go and now we're here to, to turn things around. Will you help us keep the company out of bankruptcy? And that's when I became the president CEO of the company. And again, I was just sort of heads down like, okay, what's bankruptcy? You know, like chapter seven versus chapter 11 and interviewing lawyers and trying to avoid hiring them, um, <laughs> shutting down offices all over the country and, you know, eventually did a turnaround. But by 2005, I started to have this sense of my gender and for a number of different reasons, uh, one of which being the, the fact that every one of our clients, for the most part, were men. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't that I was unaware of that because even when we were 700 and some consultants in the field, it was less than 20 or so that were women. But increasingly, you know, I would be out um, in, at a very strategic level in the field with our customers and our customers. I was moving us up the food chain from line managers to working with directors to working with then chief information officers. And, and I kept, you know, increasingly feeling like, why is she in this room? You know, I wasn't a technical person. I was a psychology major. Um, you know, I looked very young at the time. I was, I am, I was a woman. And so that's a long way of getting to, I started a dinner group that was of female CIOs. And that um, dinner group in 2005 was about eight people to start with. And by the time I stepped down from running Taos in 2012, it was about 80 some people. And then I started expanding it into CFOs and CMOs and VPs. And, and by 2015, it was 150 some people. And that became the basis for Athena. And we didn't talk about it's difficult being women or, you know, the challenges of women during all of that time, we were talking about data center strategy and, um, you know, uh, BCPDR and network uh, enhancements and, you know, data, like co-locations and moves. And like, I mean, it just was like the kinds of stuff that you talk about running your business, not, not, you know, it wasn't that we were held back in, in a sense, we, 
we were held back, but at the same time, we were the women who were at the top. So we were talking really about our businesses. Since, since then, since, um, running Taos and then starting Athena through a dinner group. What have you seen as the evolution of women in leadership roles, especially over the last, you know, four, I'd say four to eight years or so? Yeah, for sure. Um, Well, the first thing I I had this sort of moment of realization in late 2015, there was a um, Senator Mark Warner was out from Virginia doing a hearts and minds of Silicon Valley sort of thing. And he wanted to meet with a group of women um, leaders and hear from us. And so I was one of the women that got together with him and it was about 20 of us or so. So, and around a big table, Senator sitting at the head and he said, what's on your minds? And someone said boardroom and that was it. It just kind of went off from there. And I was looking around the room and I'm like, well, this is interesting because you're in healthcare and you're in the legal profession and you're, you know, retail. And it's like, what do you mean? Uh, You know, and I, I knew that there was a dearth of women in tech, but I, I, I've been so much in the tech world that I didn't realize that it was a problem, you know, that only 14% of, of women lawyers make it to partner. Like what? There's just as many women lawyers as, you know, and like, why? Um, or that healthcare systems are run by men as, you know, even though there's women throughout the hospital system and things like that, that just sort of, um, was eye-opening for me. I hadn't really thought about it. And, and I started investigating and I got a, um, flurry of emails from this, the group of women that were there with the Senator saying, that's it, Coco, go solve this problem. So, you know, that was kind of my first real, even though I'd been building this dinner group since 2005, I wasn't really thinking about the broad-based issue, I, I was thinking about, um, you know, what I thought was more of a narrow issue, a tech issue. And, and then I, you know, really started digging into and understanding what was going on in the world and the tailwinds that are behind um, women, which, which is interesting because, you know, we think it's about sort of a a moment of fresh frustration or a breaking through, right? The Me Too movement, um, you know, as as a big one, that that that's what the tailwind behind women. But actually, the tailwind, a lot of like the better sustainable tailwind behind women is that there's been a a fundamental um, shift, not even a shift, a fundamental flipping of power from businesses to consumer. And so what that means is that it doesn't matter, you know, almost it, it almost doesn't matter how poor you are, you have a device in your hand and you can, you have a voice and, you know, that's not completely universally true, but now businesses are no longer able to tell company or companies are no longer able to tell people what a brand feels like and what the brand is and how you should feel when you have the brand and um, who you become when you have the brand and all of those things. Consumer tells the company that, you know, if, if United Airlines can say all sorts of things that they want to say about their brand, but if they drag somebody off the airplane and five people catch it on a video and then it goes wild on the internet, that's a problem, right? That's, that's the consumer in charge, not you, um, company. And that's happening all over the place. 
And that started happening with, you know, Wells Fargo debacle um, and then, you know, United Airlines and Uber and, you know, Wynn Resorts and all of this. A lot of it was me too, but it was also other ways in which consumers were being mistreated by, by brands and taking control. And that shift, that fundamental shift is what, you know, has sort of created more of an adoption of consumer of conscious capitalism in the United States, which is kind of the second thing where you hear Wall Street kind of talking about diversity and how much it matters. Excuse me. So you hear like the CEO of BlackRock talking about how diversity in the boardroom matters. And everybody's like, oh, is he is he just kind of on the equal rights sort of, you know, bandwagon? No, he's on the (laughs) I understand consumers are in charge bandwagon. And the money that's behind a lot of institutional investment is pension funds and endowments from universities. And so it's, you know, and so then the third thing is there, if those two things are true and the power is changing and the powers that be are paying attention, then what's required at the top of leadership is um, a lot more integrated than it ever was before. It's a shift away from, it's not an abandoning of, but it's a shift away from, Um, just valuing at all expense, risk-taking and the competition and the fight to to win and these attributes that we consider very masculine. And we think only men can champion these, right? And it's a shifting toward bringing in vulnerability, cooperation, co-opetition, you know, the, the care for society and other, and these are feminine qualities and they're also embedded fundamentally in roles that women have historically played in leadership like 70 over 75 percent of chros are women over over 45 percent of chief marketing officers are women um you know 30 something percent of chief customer officers are women so you know while we're only six percent of ceos <laughs> today we're we're in power roles now that used to be the pink ghetto, that pink ghetto is no longer the pink ghetto. It, these are power roles. And that's changing everything for women, I think. Mm-hmm. I'd never heard that term, pink ghetto. It basically means it's the role, It's these are the roles from which you will never reach the CEO seat. Mm, okay. But that's not true. You know, it, it's, it's, it's not true any longer. You can become, I mean, I started out in HR. And mm-hmm. I was, mm-hmm. But, but um, but yeah, these these power roles are, for one thing, they're empowered by data and technology in ways that they've never been empowered by that before. Um, you know, so the tool sets around them to make them more scientific roles, if you will, is mm-hmm. really empowering. And um, and then the value of those roles is really empowering. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know uh, <clears throat> Athena, a large part of it is to help women um, land board roles, but there's also a very deep and substantial educational component to Athena. How how are you seeing your organization kind of keep up with the times, but also, you know, lead the times? Because I, I think Athena does a, an incredible job of, of attracting the right women 
to the organization. And then also, you know, this matchmaking piece um, that the organization does on boards. But what what do you see, you know, in the near term future and the long term future for Athena? And again, like the roles of women as they continue to grow in these within these power roles? Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> well, one of the things that is absolutely true in today's world is that everything is moving so quickly that it's no longer the case that things that were true 10 years ago, you know, if something is true today that I can hold it as a truth 10 years from now, right? <laughs> like, um, which used to be the case, you know, when my parents got when my dad uh, uh, got his um, master's in economics and his PhD in economics, and he would hold forth the power of the MBA, it was like something that you got and then you could refer back to for your entire career, you know, when Porter says, and, you know, 30-year planning and 10-year planning and all of these kinds of things. And but in today's world, if you were to get an MBA, it's irrelevant even while it's happening because it's based on old case studies that took three years to approve. You know, it's not dynamic enough. And in our world now, kids are graduating, being told we don't even know what careers you're going to have because they haven't been invented yet. <laughs> and they're also questioning whether they need the degrees if with most professions, you know, doctor, lawyer, things like that aside, but like what professions really need degrees today and what professions really require memorization versus the ability to learn, um, you know, because you can just Google it. And if you translate that and bring that all the way forward into the executive realm, where entire business models are changing, entire industries are popping up, new ways of going to market, um, roles are, are super dynamic. You have all these roles where like, I just learned for the first time in the last couple of months, the title of total rewards officer. I'm like, what is that? You know, <laughs> there's all sorts of, you know, chief customer officer was relatively new 10 years ago. And so there's just so much going on in that realm of running the business that if you're gonna be a senior leader, you have to have a dynamic way of keeping your finger on the pulse of wisdom. And that is a increasingly difficult challenge. So for example, when I first took over as president CEO of Taos, my first job was to keep us out of bankruptcy. And what option, and this was 20 years ago now, what, what options did I have? I I called a bunch of lawyers, I brought them in, I interviewed them, and I tried not to hire them because they didn't want that to be the path, right? And plus, we couldn't afford them. We're trying to stay out of bankruptcy, not give all of the remaining cash to the lawyers. <laughs> um, and, you know, so, but learning about like, how do I stay out of it isn't just a just Google it kind of thing. Yeah, you can research and find the difference between chapter seven and chapter 11. But what I really needed were people to talk to in the moment, that people that I could say, okay, what you experienced, quote unquote, yesterday, I'm experiencing today. And I need, I need to fast track with your experience so that I have the wisdom and the insight to do this right. Right. And so how do you do that? You don't do that through certificate programs and universities and, um, you know, courses and talking to a whole bunch of expensive experts necessarily. <clears throat> what you do that with is an ecosystem that you can learn from. And if you think about this from, you know, 
centuries with men. Um, the first stock exchange was created 400 years ago. So let's just even start with that concept, right? They've been learning how to risk take and, and lend and borrow, you know, for, for centuries. And, and we have this imagery, right, of the sort of the wealthy elite, the women would retire to talk about society and family and became the experts in that domain. And the men would go talk about politics and business and became the experts in that domain. And so how they did it was through wisdom sharing, right? And, and we have to, one, women have some catching up to do and just getting comfortable with that activity. But secondly, that's the way we need to learn together as, a, as, as leaders in today's world. So that's, you know, Athena, people can join Athena and pursue a specific pathway, path to the board, and we will help you. And we've got, you know, it, we've got a five steps with, um, if you think of where we've got an on-demand learning platform, five steps, 11 seasons, 80 episodes. Yes, we're experts on getting you to the boardroom. And we've helped over 300 women get to the boardroom, but we're also helping women get to the C-suite. We're helping them stay strong as board leaders. We're helping them um, become entrepreneurs and, and so on. And so that piece of it is about, don't just focus on the end game. You need to focus on being a great leader throughout, but we're all so busy and so pressed for time that we need to get access to learning in a very dynamic, like instantaneous way. So I need to learn about bankruptcy. I can go easily figure out which eight women can talk to me about it. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's a beautiful thing for sure. <clears throat> and with endless challenges that we're faced with today, it's it's great to have that as a resource for sure. You've built an incredible platform. Let's turn the uh, the lens a little bit more to you personally. And how would you characterize your own personal brand attributes or or your leadership style? What would you say are some of the qualities about your your personal brand? Yeah, I mean, I I was born in Malaysia. I've been to forty three different countries, which is about twenty five percent of the world out of one hundred and ninety five countries. I've been to, you know, um, four of the seven continents. Uh, so I haven't been to Africa. I haven't been to Australia and I haven't been to Antarctica. Um, I've, I've, tr- I've traveled in a very, um, a very rustic way. I truly am, am an intrepid traveler. And as an example, I carried a duffel bag that was tiny, um, for almost a month across India, into Nepal, into Tibet and across China. And I can, I can, I can be put up about, I I would, I would say I could be, I could sleep anywhere, but I can't really, I don't sleep well, so I can't really sleep anywhere, but you could put me anywhere and I can, I can probably be comfortable, um, you know, in, in the environment. I'm not, um, I'm not high maintenance at all. Um, and, I think some of those things and I can get along with just about anybody. And I, I'm really, there isn't much that's taboo for me to talk about. And I'm um, there are sort of fundamentals that I have that are the rules that I live by, but they're not, but I do not cancel culture. Um, I'm not a cancel, a canceler. Um, You know, so like my rules though, the, the, the non-negotiables are like, you know, 
I don't subscribe to laws that govern how I can treat my own body or life. And I don't, you know, I, I think slavery and enslavement, even when it's not uh, with chains is um, evil and trafficking people is evil. And, you know, there's certain things, right. But, but all of that is to say that I, you know, I think one of my big drivers underneath it all be, and, and I, I, credit all those things about my past and my, you know, what I've seen in the world is that I have this, I'm, I'm compelled to try to help whenever I can. And I, I don't always succeed at it, but it's not something I can avoid thinking about. I, I see the need for help all all the time. And if I walk away from it, if I walk away from somebody with their hand out on the street, I'm very aware of the fact that I walked away and what, you know, my, oftentimes the justification, uh, most of the time, the justification is I actually have no cash on me. Otherwise I'm like, I have to give it to them. (laughs) And people will say, you know, but they've got other options and there's that, you know, I just, I, I'm compelled to help. And that is, it's not a, it's not a mother Teresa virtue. It's more just, um, it's, it's just, I, I get disappointed when I don't see more people helping. I get disappointed when people don't see the need for help in other people. You know, I, I, I find that really disappointing when, when we get so caught up in our own needs that we don't see the needs of others. Um, so I think, you know, that's kind of central in my brand. And I think in, in how that translates into business is that I've, I've always been really, really good at connecting dots and being able to see sort of the full landscape and say, ah, if we put these things together, we could have this, right? And similarly with people, I've always been in people businesses. Um, our product was people at Taos. Our product uh, is not people at Athena, but in some ways it is when we're promoting women to board opportunities. But, you know, we are a community at Athena. That's absolutely what we are. And I am naturally drawn toward making connections. You know, what what can I connect here? (laughs) Is it this person to that person, this idea to that idea that these people have? You know, um, that's that I think would be very consistent and true. And probably these things would be universally said about me. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, what, how old were you when you left Malaysia? Oh, three and a half. Okay. I've been back a number of times. I have, you know, our quote unquote Malaysian family that um, we met through my son actually, but, uh, but yeah. No, that's amazing. What would you say, I know you know a lot of females in leadership positions, what would you say is it about just leaders in general, female or male, um, that create an amazing environment, an amazing culture that is really sticky and holds employees to that organization, keeps their employees? Well, for one thing, in the absence of information, people make things up and they usually don't 
create the best stories. You know, we, we usually create sort of worst case scenarios in our heads. Um, and so people are vulnerable and they also don't necessarily display that vulnerability to you. You don't necessarily know that they're wringing their hands internally and anxious and worried. And so I think one of the things that's critical, particularly in our, our, you know, we have about 30 some people that work for Athena, not all of them full time, but um, they're spread all over the globe. Our director of community and learning lives in South Africa. Our mem- our uh, marketing manager lives in Morocco. Our, you know, and they're both actually U.S. citizens. Um, you know, we have three teammates that live in uh, Nicaragua and one in Mexico and one in Florida and one in Oregon. And, you know, they're all over the place, right? So how do you create a sense of intimacy and security when everybody's so distributed and when we as human beings are fundamentally designed to both be hopeful, but also paranoid, (laughs) you know, like, like we, and so I, I think a lot about that kind of stuff. And I think, you know, I do believe that it's true that the number one reason people leave a job is because of their manager. Um, I think that that's true. I, I mean, not, you know, the studies say it is, but I, in my own experience, um, you know, people, people will often like, if there's a, if there's a leaving problem, it's generally sits there. Um, other reasons people leave is because you can't give them what they want. You know, I had somebody leave to go work for a UK based company and she, she is going to get, um, 12 months of maternity, 52 weeks of maternity leave. I'm like, I can't give that to you. I'm a small company. Like, yes, go do it. Um, you know, so if, if people can leave you for reasons that is, that are expansive for them and that's something that you can't do something about, you should celebrate them. You should, you know, be excited for them. Um, but in terms of holding on to people who, um, you know, for whom you should be able to hold on, I think there's a, a couple of factors. One is you have to create vulnerability and intimacy. And so you have to, you have to share stories, you know, um, you have to talk about what's going on. Um, you have to encourage them to do the same thing. Um, you have to, you have to be quick to, um, quick to bring up issues, you know, and focus on the issues, not the individuals, but, but quick to bring up the issues, quick to say, you know, I'm disappointed that, um, the outcome of, you know, what you've been working on this last week didn't result in X, Y, and Z. This is what I was expecting. Why didn't we get there? Like like not just let things sit ever. Right. And that's why I'm actually kind of not a fan of performance reviews. I have to say, I'm, I'm really not a fan of performance reviews Um, because I think you should be reviewing performance all the time and telling people, you know, how they're doing all the time and creating an environment where they can say, I know this sounds paranoid, but Coco, are you happy with me? Or are you unhappy with me? 
what do you mean? Why did you think that? Well, because you said this thing and it was really quickly and passing them. Oh, that's because I was absolutely not listening to you at all. And I'm really sorry about that. Right. Like you need to, you know, because we're human and we're fallible and we say stupid things and we make mistakes and we aren't listening to each other a lot of the time. And we, move too quickly. And we, you know, so you have to have an environment where people are willing to go, Hey, wait, you just moved really quickly. And that left me feeling like this. Is that, is that the wrong attitude? Is that the wrong feeling to have? (laughs) Did you intend that? Right? Like that's the kind of stuff we have to have built in. And then the other thing that's really, really important, um, is so the way we do that, by the way, at Athena, we have, uh, Every other week we have an Athena wisdom exchange. We're very vocal in the Slack water cooler, um, sharing all the time. We have, you know, we'll quickly get on a phone call together to wrestle something out um, as opposed to back and forth on email, things like that. Um, But the other thing that I think is really, really critical is you have to make hard judgment calls and you have to make those quickly too. And that means firing people and, that never feels good because it feels counter to, you know, you can make mistakes and vulnerability and all of this. Like, yeah. And, um, you can't, you can't, uh, if you, the team usually knows what mediocrity looks like, or they know what, um, underperformance or, or, Uh, misguided performance looks like, or somebody over their skis and not able to, to, to get, to, to get their balance, right? Like that people know, and you need to save the company around the people who are, who are, aren't performing as much as you need to help that person by, by moving them on. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And um, and I feel like if a leader doesn't, then you're it's really just a disservice to the people who are, yeah. right, like skiing strongly. So um, you have recently acquired a role at NASDAQ. And yes. um, I think it's super fascinating. We'd love to hear about that, what you're doing there. Yeah, I'm really excited about it because I see NASDAQ as <clears throat> having a lot of influence. You know, they... Uh, while SEC and various different, you know, um, governing bodies and um, and influential bodies will influence NASDAQ, the, the same is true. NASDAQ can influence the SEC and um, and did recently on on the SEC's diversity rulings. Um, so the the role I play, NASDAQ created um, an insights council. Uh, that was launched in, I think, was it January, February, April, Q1 of this year. (laughs) It all blurs together. Um, And uh, it's about 25 of us, maybe, I want to say, 20, 25 of us. And I'm on the portion of that council that is focused on governance. Um, So there's a a portion that's focused on environment, uh, and sustainability. There's a portion that's focused on DEI. There's a portion that's focused on, oh gosh, um, I forget. Uh, but then there's governance as well. And I'm on the governance piece. And and the reason that I am really excited about being on the governance subcouncil is because what we're doing, there's about, I think, six of us. What we're doing is thinking deeply about whether or not the structure of the board as it exists today 
is the structure of the board as it needs to exist. You know, that the last real fundamental um, uh, dictated change to board structure happened 20 years ago. And that was to require um, financial expertise on boards. And, and the structure of three committees in this is public company boards that happened in the 80s, you know, the, the three committees, um, comp, nomgov, and, and audit. And so the question is now in the two in the 2020s, are those three committees inappropriately labeled, designed, structured, chartered, um, you know, sort of. Do we need to re-examine the fundamental charter of those? Are there other committees that are, need to be in place? Um, how appropriate is it, this structure that says boards meet quarterly? Um, you know, is it, it what we saw in the pandemic and with George Floyd is boards started meeting much more often. Like, do they need to meet more often and, and shorter timeframes? Should there be more committees that then roll up into the general? Like what's the right way to, and are the, are the critical roles that are required, do they require embedded in, in the charter and in the, the responsibility of the board? Yes, and also in the skill set of the board members, capabilities around human capital, um, you know, sustainability and environment, certainly for companies that have a big footprint in that sort of the space um, and security and technology, you know, like are these, should we now re-examine? And I think, yeah, it's well overdue. <clears throat> and so that's what I'm, I'm excited to, to be a part of. We're doing a lot of work with NASDAQ. We, we write for NASDAQ fairly often. We're, um, partnered with NASDAQ around NASDAQ's trained their sales team and their account management team on Athena to, to um, encourage the companies that they work with to have a partner to work with if they're looking for diversity on their boards. And so there's, there's a lot of partnering going on, which is amazing. Oh, that's excellent. That's excellent. Coco, as we wrap up, what do you see in your future? How do you want to continue to grow both your business brand and your personal brand? Yeah, um, I mean, ultimately, I want to see the world evolve. And I want to see diversity at, I want to see leadership at the top of business represent the demographics of the society that it serves. And not simply because it's the right thing, but because it's also great for business and in the sense of like, for example, if in, in uh, boards, there was more capability around human capital and go-to-market strategy and things like that, that's good for business. And that's also where you'll find diversity, right? So, so I think it goes hand in hand, but, but I, I, I want to see a dynamic world. I want to see a world where, you know, on my own board, I have a transgender woman, a black woman. I, you know, um, I, I and it's not just because I'm checking boxes. It's because these are great, incredible talents that are also bringing perspective that um, you can only get if you're worldly. You know, people, anybody who travels, one of the things that they say they love about travel is perspective. You come home and you have perspective, even if you just stayed in a club met the entire time. It brings fresh eyes to what you're looking at when you walk through your door. 
Um, so perspective is extremely important. So that that's my the two drivers for me are are one that you know wanting to see the top leadership as diverse as the society that we exist within, which is getting more and more difficult to quantify, right? Like how black do you have to be as an example, right? What about Corgentinians and, you know, Blackanese and like we're, there aren't seven races, right? Like we're getting, we're getting complicated and we just need to get really comfortable with that complication. And then the second big thing is that I want the structure of business to fundamentally change. It was designed around, um, you know, the elites and a factory model. And, and what I mean by that is you punch in, you punch out this sort of idea that, you know, corporations need to, to be structured in a certain way that is not designed well for women in particular, but for everybody. And also the way that you progress and, and the way that you get access to opportunity is, is based on structures also that are of the elite, like the, you know, university system and that the academics know and the experts know, and you have to learn from them in order to progress. And so we're tackling those two big, huge issues at Athena. So my, you know, what's in it for me is, you know, yes, I want to build a really big company and, you know, I, I want us to be, um, amazing in the eyes of the public. Um, and more important than that, I want us to be a driver in a movement to change and faster, you know, not incremental and slowly, but really quickly to changing the way leaders learn and to changing what it means to be a modern leader at the top of business. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you're well on your way to doing that. So that's, that's amazing. Where's the best place for people to learn more about you and learn about Athena? We'll put the links in the show notes too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, AthenaAlliance.com. That's, you know, so there's two A's in the middle there because it's AthenaAlliance.com. That's the best way. The other is we have a LinkedIn page. So if you go to LinkedIn and look up Athena Alliance, um, follow us on our LinkedIn page. There's so much going on there. Um, We're constantly talking. and or follow me on LinkedIn as well. Those are the best ways. Awesome. Thank you so much, Coco. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Business of You. If you found a little dose of inspiration or learned something new, please leave a review and share it with a friend or even two. Interested in building your brand and business? Tune in next time to The Business of You podcast. And remember, there's only one you. You're the biggest differentiator your business has. Until next time, friends.